This is Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. This is Jim Grant. Uh, and with me, as always, is Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grant's, and uh, Henry French at the control panel. And with us today is John Haskell, about whom you'll be hearing a lot presently. Now, I want to complain about two things. One, my voice, which is I've, I've got a, you know, a little thing in my throat. And the second item for complaint is, have you ever tried to get a DayQuil tablet out of a DayQuil packaging? You know, blasting cap, right? What is this? I mean, you don't feel that great anyway when you go to retrieve a DayQuil tablet. And yet, and Ny- NyQuil is even worse. After like a beer, you can't, it's impossible. So that's, uh, I just wanted to get that out there. That's the financial substance of this. No, it's not. This is just an intro thing. Well, um, Evan, as, as we talk, as, 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 as I am vaporing, um, uh, Jerome Powell is uh, testifying before the House uh, of Representatives. What do you think? In as much as we sometimes criticize the Fed, I kind of feel bad for him going up in front of Congress and getting grilled by people who have no sense of economics, interest rates, or anything else, but have strong opinions on all those topics. Well, I mean, he brought this on. You know, somebody made a, a wonderful observation about the Fed and its um, capacity for uh, prophecy and uh, foresight. He said, uh, the Fed can't predict the interest rate it controls. It's a great way of looking at the federal funds rate and its uh, and its ascent. But anyway, um, so much for macroeconomic musings and ramblings. I want to get um, into a conversation with John Haskell, who is the chief investment officer at Atla Capital Management, uh, which invests in places that not all of us have visited. Uh, Atla Atla specializes in real estate and real estate related companies in emerging markets and. Uh, John is a city dweller, and he is pro-urbanization or pro-opportunity, where urbanization trends are most pronounced. And um, I met John Haskell when uh, he was at the Harvard Business School. Yeah. And um, I did not know him in his days at uh, Columbia University, Columbia College, I suppose more exactly, where he was a comparative literature major. But I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm kind of... Uh, Breezing on by his uh, background at the Boston Consulting Group, where he was a project leader and and, uh, an explorator of capital management. Uh, But I'm 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 going to give you uh, as a comp literature major. I'm going to give you a little quiz. Okay, Um, I want you the name the name of the author um, who um, invested uh, not overly successfully in some of the following names. Let's see. uh, Here we go. This quiz comes courtesy of uh, David Johnson, a paid-up subscriber to Grant's Interest Rate Observer. So thank you, David, for the question. So he would like you, John Haskell, to identify the famous author who, around the time of 1909, was buying some of these following names. Now, uh, uh, the Tanzania Railway, uh, Pain de Londres, Australian Gold Mines, Rio Tinto, and Tramways of Mexico. All right, name that author. Thank you for having me on the show. I, I Don't change no- the subject. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, Did the author make money? I'll get around to that in one second. The author is Marcel Proust. Ah. And um, uh, David Johnson had been reading a Benjamin Taylor's uh, short Yale biography of Marcel Proust. And uh, David was struck by the fact that um, uh, Proust uh, invested in companies he liked the names of. Yes. So, And uh, the author of this biography that David has called to our attention says the following, quote, Proust belonged to that category of small investor who buys on a rising market and sells on the downturn. Perhaps at the downturn. That might have been a bit bad. Um, 
at the bottom, I guess. Well, he should have spent more time eating Madeleines and thinking about his childhood. <laughs> well, I think he managed to do that too. He did. Yeah. So, um, uh, John Haskell, you are, uh, for all I know, you're a believer in American exceptionalism. I don't know you, pro or con, but you have chosen to make your investment career outside these 50 states. And I should say, by way of introduction, I'm now looking at um, John Haskell's report to his uh, limited partners, because he's in a, in a private partnership. But um, uh, he has reporting for the past three years. Just over two years. Two years, sorry. And, uh, and uh, so the market as the market is measured in emerging market uh, terms, it was down 20 odd percent, whereas John Haskell's fund was up 20. Wait a second, my eyeglasses on straight, this is impossible. Uh, up 25.4%, yeah. So um, with that as preface and background, um, what do you have against American exceptionalism? Well, thank you for the intro. Um, I have nothing against American exceptionalism. I'm excited about the opportunities and the valuations of opportunities outside of the United States. You know, I think there are maybe three points of departure for me. The first two many people talk about demographics and valuations. So the you know rest of the world is is youthful and and that is a tailwind to economic growth. The developed world is graying and that saps. Hey, 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 hey. I, I'm I am too. No, you're not. I am. Let the record. Hey, Evan, you be the arbiter. Henry French, what do you, you think? See it right over here. You see one my gray eyebrow. hair? Do you have a magnifying glass? Yes, you might, no. I have, really a, I have a gray eyebrow. I thought, um, that, I thought that was a boxing thing. No? It's, it's something genetic, but then again, so is graying hair. I think on you, it looks good. Thank you. It's my wizard brow. Okay. And so the demographics you know, are just one point that I think many people make. Um, another is valuation. Emerging markets have had a wipeout in terms of valuation. Public equity markets, partly it's a function of the strong dollar and the weak basket of foreign currencies. But even in local currency terms, the valuations for businesses have compressed over the last 10, 15 years. And that is interesting to me as a value investor looking for opportunities. But I think a third point of departure that fewer people discuss is urbanization. And that is the fact that pretty much all, 96% actually, of the projected incremental growth of the human population for, until 2040, according to the UN, is emerging market cities. In other words, cities and overwhelmingly emerging market cities are capturing all of the projected human population growth from here on out that we can foresee. And that is, you know, quite a powerful point of departure for finding opportunities. And the reason why is because with population growth comes the need for upgrades to the built environment in which you live, right? It's necessary to have better public transportation. Uh, it's necessary to mitigate the environmental impact of so many people in one place. People become, um, you know, wealthier and aspire to larger and cleaner uh, living environments. So there's an opportunity that's kind of the Venn diagram of demographics of valuation and urbanization that I think is quite you know, compelling. Joe, when I, when I hear the projection that 96% of the growth is going to be in urban emerging, that um, is a strong, strong implicit projection of productivity growth in agriculture, is it not? It's a strong statement that growth is closely tied with living in cities. So if you 
map out all of the countries by GDP per capita and put them into quartiles and say, look, these are the richest countries and these are the poorest countries. In the poorest quartile, two out of five people live in cities. And by the way, the average GDP per capita at that level in US dollar terms is about 1300. Most wealthy quartile, four out of five people live in cities. And we're talking $54,000 per capita. And the point at which this inflects or changes is really at the poorer end of the spectrum, such that every $200 increment of GDP per capita implies one percentage point more of the total population living in cities. So the rate of urbanization is very correlated with economic growth at the um, poorer end of the spectrum. Okay. Well, um, I know John Haskell from his days at the Harvard Graduate School of Business, but Evan um, knows him um, as a fellow devotee of the fine, fine art of security analysis. And it was thanks to Evan's connection with John that we became reacquainted. And um, Evan, you you um, have uh, picked out a lot of names that have served both John and our readers very well. Yeah. Uh, amongst other things, when John was just launching um, uh, Atla Capital, uh, he spoke to us in, what was it, early 2021? And That's one right. of the names he pitched us was a hotel operator in Mexico, a Fibra Hotel. F-I-B-R-A. Fibra, yes. It's, uh, Fibra is basically the Spanish acronym for REIT. Um, so Fibra Hotel was kind of on its back. It, 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 the country was largely shut down due to uh, COVID. Nobody was really traveling. And it has been probably one of the best performing stocks, I think, in your portfolio. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 71%. 71% yeah. at the time of writing. It's gone up further since then. So it's, it's been a great return. That's before tax, though, right? Yeah, and, and those are in dollar terms too. Those are in dollar terms. Yeah. That's right. Wow. You mentioned this a second ago, but I, I want to highlight it just because I think it is so stark. So, in dollar terms, the MSCI Emerging Market Index has seen its price fall six point six percent over the last ten years. Over that same ten year stretch, the S and P five hundred's price, not just dividends reinvested, just pure price, is up one hundred and fifty six percent. Now, I, I understand the kind of idea that almost all population growth is going to happen in emerging markets and mostly in emerging market cities. But this has started to happen already. Why have emerging markets had such a long period of underperformance? And I, 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 I'll leave it at that, but I, I'd love to kind of understand what exactly drove kind of the cheap valuations you're finding today. Yeah, I mean, there's been many points of drawdown in EM that you can point to in the last 15 years. Maybe one is the commodity super cycle around, um, you know, 12, 13, that essentially was the reflection of the projections for China's economic growth, consumption of hard materials like copper to build cities and steel. And as though the, the demand for those hard commodities declined, you know, that led to a brutal sell-off in the price of those commodities. And that impacts the terms of trade and the fiscal position of countries that are financing, you know, their uh, economic growth and and, and sometimes populist agendas through the revenues from taxing of those commodity exporters. And so the adjustment that that led to in the real economy um, was very stark and led to a you know, decline in the value of, in the earnings of corporations. Um, and you also have the outflow of capital that no longer saw the growth story that they bought into. And you know, that led to a compression in valuation multiples. More recently, in, in response to COVID, with the printing of money and then the need to raise interest rates to try to contain the inflation that that caused, you've seen um, a 
pretty stark flow of funds into the dollar attracted by higher rates. And that led the dollar index to reach unprecedentedly strong levels, you know, the strongest dollar in, in recorded history, essentially. And, and what that means is weak foreign currencies. And so for a U.S. dollar investor, the dollar measured returns on a forward basis in EM are more compelling with that currency aspect as well. Let me ask you about the importance of demographics. You're a value-seeking investor. I mean, I, I don't know. Even the growth guys wouldn't say they don't like valuable things or they, they, they want to overpay. They, but let me pose this question to you to, to kind of tease out the importance of demographics. Say if um, uh, you know, Japan is, uh, is famously uh, uh, kind of the almost about to happen thing and um, uh, some very fine Japanese companies are selling at some very attractive multiples. Um, indeed, multiples perhaps on a par with some of the ones you are familiar with in the emerging. What uh, would you look at Japan? I would, you know, let me just put demographics in a different light. I think demographics, positive demographics provide the opportunity for the productive allocation of capital, right? The investment of capital into productive uses. Now that could lead to an interesting mispricing in the market, but there are plenty of places that, um, you know, don't have a demographic dividend that may have dislocated asset values as well. So, you know, when I think about demographics in cities, maybe the classic example is London during the industrial revolution. So from in the 1800s, London went from 1 million people to six and a half million people. And that was driven by a shift in the economy from, from agriculture to um, industry and the move into cities of labor to you know, work in factories. What's interesting to me about that period of time for London's growth, one and a half to two and a half percentage points per annum growth in the population is, is the great stink of 1858. So this, this has been, this is a city that was growing for 60 years before the sewage became so stinky that they had to, uh, that they finally voted on building the embankment, the, the sewage system that would capture the you know, sewage before it landed in the river. And so what it means, what I, what I take away from that is population can grow per, at a pronounced level for a very long time before you then put capital to work to solve the problems of that population growth. And I think anybody would say that the, you know, building the sewers was a productive use of capital, right? And in a world where there's so much capital and there's such distorted uses of that capital, it's a nice starting point to say, okay, here's, here's a real challenge that can be addressed through investment. And that's just the starting point. But EM offers plenty of low-hanging fruit for the productive use of capital. Tell us about, uh, if you would please, John, tell us about the, uh, the Marriott Hotel in um, Yokohatara, Indonesia, where you spent uh, apparently uh, 16 or 24 months. I, am, I conjecture from the detail of the I'm gathering facts about the uh, kind of the microeconomic metabolism of that uh, that that place, that property, and the people who uh, go to it to make their living and to uh, play. So, so a little context: I I went to uh, the island of Java, uh, in the center of Java, the city called it's pronounced Jogjakarta or Jogja for oh, short. I, I worked so hard it's, on it, <laughs> but it has a Y, so it, it's spelled like Yogyakarta. It's not Jakarta; that's different. 
Uh, it's about eight hours away driving. It's a quicker flight. And uh, there's a hotel there, the Marriott. It's the only internationally flagged hotel within a you know, 60 five star, five star hotel. That's right. Within a pretty large radius. And um, it's owned by Pakwan Jati, which is a publicly traded real estate company in Indonesia. They operate out of Jakarta and Surabaya, which is the industrial city in the east of Java. And Jakarta is right in the middle of those two places. And what's interesting to me about that is they were able to purchase a hotel in COVID from a distressed seller who couldn't pay their debt because occupancy declined and there was leverage on that hotel. And they paid cash with their balance sheet, which is essentially a cash net cash balance sheet at the time. And they were able to buy it at a you know 12 cap, 12 and a half cap and cap rate, which is to say the price, you know, as it relates to net operating income. So it's kind of a proxy for free cash flow or a real estate term that is similar to free cash flow. And uh, and that's on normalized, you know, it was a cheap valuation for an asset that serves a very domestic demand pool, right? A, a, a pool of, of travelers that mostly come from within the island of Java, actually. Um, and I saw that firsthand in the conference rooms as I wrote in that letter. Um, there was a company uh, that had all the managers, middle managers, meeting about an implementation of an ERP system, and there was a, uh, a high school reunion, 40th reunion, with you know folks coming with their children to how they look that. much older than high schoolers. Um, so that was a trip to Indonesia just to try to get some of the color about the allocation of capital. One of the more recent examples of how Pakwanjati, you know took the opportunity in a moment of dislocation. And, and what I think that speaks to is I'm buying companies that, as you mentioned, publicly traded, mostly real estate companies where I'm paying, you know, below replacement cost or very inexpensive cap rates for assets that have productive uses that generate, you know, real cash flows. But these are also management teams that are quite competent and disciplined in the in the allocation of capital. So as they you know, potentially retain and reinvest their cash flows, they're doing so opportunistically into opportunities that are, you know, good deals. So, so maybe this is a great way to segue into kind of the value you're finding on the ground. So Pakwan Jati, the owner of that Marriott Hotel in uh, the town that I'm not going to try to pronounce. Jogja. Um, they have a very clean balance sheet. You find them to be opportunistic investors who take advantage of opportunities, and they're in fast-growing cities and emerging markets. How's the stock valued? I mean, in the U.S., we're still finding you know real estate investment trusts that are trading at like five percent caps, which is a, a pretty rich valuation considering that the you know what one-year T-bill yields five point three percent today. So there are different ways to look at the valuation um, and, and see that it's it's cheap. You know, one that we mentioned um, in in a recent issue was the insurance policy. I think it's worth mentioning that Pakwanjati has an insurance policy on its built assets that's worth more than its entire enterprise value. But you know, when you look at it, there are two main sources of value. On the one hand, it's their stabilized portfolio of commercial real estate, which comprises of hotels and office towers uh, and you know, uh, retail and kind of mixed use, what they call super blocks, large urban centers. Um, and and that, if you disregard the rest of what they own, is about an eight cap, which is cheap. That would be cheap if you just got that. But the other half of their value is land that is uh, going to be developed over the next 10 years. And every year they're developing a piece of it. 
And that is mostly residential projects that are not suburban because Jakarta is so sprawling and so dense that it's, it's actually urban, uh, but it's not the, the traditional city center. Uh, and the value of that land in present terms is, is also about the same as the commercial real estate. So, you know, if, if you, if you're getting that, then, and you're paying full price, the cap rate is, you know, NA because you're getting the commercial portfolio for free or vice versa, right? You're paying an eight cap and getting the land bank for free. What, what, what are the, um, what are the differences in accounting and reporting, uh, protocols, EM versus domestic, uh, are you as comfortable reading a financial statement by an Indonesian company as you are reading one from, so come to think of it, you know, I, I, last week I was in Vietnam and, uh, but you're young in Vietnam, they don't even require, uh, English financial statements. Uh, and that's actually one of the criteria that MSCI asks the Vietnamese regulators um, to change in order to upgrade it from frontier to emerging market status. Some countries adopt IFRS, International Financial Reporting Standards. Others have local gap, you know, whatever their Vietnamese general accepted accounting principles are. Um, and it is important wherever you are to you know, try to understand the salient differences. Do you, can you monitor insider activity in the markets in which you transact? You can. So what has been an interesting signal over the last two years is how many of the companies in the portfolio are, um, you know, having shareholders, controlling shareholders or large shareholders management, uh, you know, buy more in the dislocation, just a few off the top of my head. Um, uh, Fortress, in South Africa, Class B shares, the CEO and CFO have been buying. A company that we could discuss called Nam Long Group in Vietnam, the chairman and his two sons and his wife each have been buying, and that's all publicly filed. In Mexico, Fiber Hotel, um, you know, the controller there, Simone Galante, he has bought more during the pandemic. So a lot of the companies in the portfolio have had these kind of insider buy signals which are comforting. Being listed in a developed market the, like the U.S. is no uh, fail-safe against fraud or management teams who will just, you know, pick your pocket. But there is a concern outside of the U.S. that governance is sometimes weaker and the rule of law is not always going to work for a foreign investor's favor. How do you get comfortable investing in different time zones where perhaps you don't have the same legal recourse that you might have in the U.S. court system? Yeah, I say that as a stock picker, as an active manager, there are three things that I'm looking for. You know, the first is valuation. The second is a strong balance sheet, because I think that often creates interesting asymmetric opportunities to the upside. But the third is governance. And when you look at hard assets like real estate, they're not particularly difficult to value. And two people with diverging opinions might say that something is worth, you know, 40% more, but or, or maybe 20% less, but but not an order of magnitude different the way that if you you know, speak to people in venture capital, they might vastly dis you know, d disagree to a vast extent as to the Evidently. worth of something. <laughs> Evidently. So valuation itself is a little straightforward, more straightforward in what I'm doing. But where there is the opportunity to pick and choose truly is on the governance side. And what we're looking for are the uh, conditions for management to work on behalf of who they work for which is shareholders, as opposed to themselves. That means that they need to be aligned. Um, and it also means that 
you know, we're looking for management that is competent, competent in running their businesses and, and the allocation of capital. And because we're investing in publicly traded real estate, which many listeners might think of real estate as a private equity opportunity, but it's increasingly in emerging markets, a public markets opportunity too. The ones who are the first to list to IPO or the ones who take the opportunity to establish a REIT when REIT legislation is passed tend to be the larger and more sophisticated local managers. And so I think there's actually a skew towards better governance than the average, but there's still a lot of bad governance out there. Um, and, and you have to kind of as a first filter um, exclude the companies that are reputationally compromised, the ones that have questionable judgment, the ones that are not, you know, structured in their incentives to work on your behalf. John, how do you d deal with um, so-called headline risk? Uh, often bad news is the cover for a great investment owing to the valuations that uh, that bad news um, coaxes from the marketplace. So South Africa comes to mind, uh, you know, blackouts, uh, you hear horror stories about uh, how it's really not working. Um, so you have an investment in South Africa. How do, how do you how do you factor in those uh, those facts and stories and perhaps fables into what you're doing? For a place like South Africa, there's so much top down dysfunction and the headlines are so bad. You're right. You're not winning any popularity contests by promoting or by pitching a a South African stock. So you have to find something that has an idiosyncratic bottom-up opportunity that's so distinct or so compelling or so such a dislocation that it, you know, justifies being in a jurisdiction like that. Um, and, and you have to find a company that has, you know, a solid enough business model to survive in tough times. And that company is that one's Fortress REIT. So Fortress, it, it actually, is, they changed their name. They're now just called Fortress Real Estate because they're no longer a REIT. They're an industrial uh, portfolio. Uh, they also have some retail and office assets, but mainly they own industrial parks across South Africa. And they have two shareholder classes, which is a complicated structure that is seen nowhere else. It's a South African innovation from around the time that they IPO'd. And even South African companies no longer use these complicated multiple share class structures. They divide it into class A, which is um, first in priority for distributions of dividends and an agreed step up over time, and then class B, which gets the rest. So they're trying to distinguish risk profiles. Um, but that complexity has led to, you know, as you can imagine, an unexpected outcome, which is a period of time where uh, the, the, the stated formula and the docs, um, for the distribution of dividends between the two share classes essentially led to such confusion and, and acrimony conflict between the classes as to who's owed what, that they haven't paid out anything. And therefore they lost their REIT status where you have to pay out 90% of, of, um, recorded earnings. And they can't do that because they can't get uh, a shareholder vote to pay it because which shareholders do they pay what? And so, you know, in the in the acrimony. And where do you get into the bullish part, John? <laughs> in the acrimony, class B shares trade at 0.3 times book. You know, the the dividend, the historic dividend, if you were to apply it today, would be, you know, a yield of north of 30%. Mm. So that's pretty good, right? That's pretty good. That's worth that's worth investing in a South African company. Have, have you visited that company in South Africa? I have. And you know, part of this is it's not rocket science. You just have to show up at the management team and then Ask them to explain how things work. You know what's available online in 
you know, mailers of annual reports, what, what have it, what have you are often, you know, the information is there, but it can be complicated to understand and management can be helpful, right. In the interpretation of, um, of, uh, for example, or the backstory, right, as to why these two shareholder classes exist, and so it was, you know, visiting them first in um, in 2017, I think it was, that that kind of hit my radar. Can I ask you a macro overlay? So, I, I know that um, population growth and growth in cities is kind of driving its own kind of virtuous cycle, but a lot of emerging markets are big commodity exporters, and the biggest consumer of commodities is China. While the Chinese economy is getting kind of a boost after they dropped their zero COVID policy in December, they're still going through kind of a, a large real estate bubble that's deflating, which probably means less commodity consumption going forward. How does kind of China play into kind of how you think and invest in emerging markets, if at all? Well, China itself, as I look at opportunities bottom up, there aren't many there. And, and that's because on the balance sheet criteria, you know, I said valuation, balance sheet and governance on balance sheet and on governance, it's hard to find something that is, that sort of meets the criteria for ATLA, um, and, and valuation, you know, we can talk about, but, but that's complicated. Um, and it's not evidently cheap on equities. Um, but to, to the second order effect, sort of what is the lower demand for commodities in China? What's the impact for that? of that on the rest of the world, you know, one thing to keep in mind is take Peru, right? Exporter of hard commodities. Price of the commodity is important to the, to the company that mines and exports, but the volumes, the volumes of exported commodities is what is sort of closer to, uh, tied to the job creation of the local economy, right? You need, still need a lot of people. And so it's that employment and the, you know, increase in wealth at the bottom of the pyramid that starts to create kind of domestic demand in these commodity export economies that can sometimes be the underpinning of a company's revenues and then profitability that is ultimately, you know, valued incorrectly by markets that creates an opportunity. John, another macro kind of question. Um, in, in our country, interest rates, of course, famously are going up, going up a lot, maybe a lot more. Um, and uh, the dollar exchange rate uh, ditto. And um, so has there been a time in the emerging market investment history in which emerging markets have flourished as the United States specifically and developed markets more generally have not? There have. I mean, one that came to mind was in a recent letter, I was describing this period of you know, 2006 or so to 2013, when if you looked at global growth, EM's growth outpaced that of developed markets, right? And in that time period, emerging market equities did very well and outperformed. Was this the, the BRIC era? Yeah, it was the BRIC era. And it was the era where, you know, the path out of the financial crisis for emerging markets was very much, you know, um, driven by demand in emerging markets. Yeah. Brick uh, signifying uh, what? Brazil, Brazil um, Russia, India, China, Rhodesia, and what? <laughs> How about that's, that's, that's behind the curve. Um, John, what does your passport look like? I have extra pages, obviously. Um, you, know, you can get a whole booklet uh -huh. in the middle. Um, and then when that runs out, you have to get a second passport. And so in the last, my current one has a few more pages, but the last time around, I had to carry around two. At the time, Brazil still required a 
visa to get in. I had a multi-entry visa, but that was in my first passport with extra pages. And then if you need more extra pages, you have to get a second passport, but carry the first for that visa. And so it ends up just being like a library that you carry. Do you, do you get the side eye when you check back into America and they say, aha, you must be a, I, an I, interesting I, figure. I came back. I had a, um, there was a year after I graduated college where I lived in China on an anthropology ethno ethnography grant, a U.S. Fulbright um, grant. And I came back from China after a year living abroad and I gave my passport to the man at JFK and he looked me in the eye and he said, welcome home, son. I love that when you got the welcome. They don't get that anymore. You don't get you don't welcome get home. Well, you, I they I've... barely talk to you anymore because of the facial yeah, recognition. Yeah. That was pre-global entry. Yeah. Well, I do miss a welcome home. Although son might have been slightly condescending. But but um, so the Fulbright anthropology, ethnology, so that you're part of the deficit problem, aren't you? You know, I'd say if it, that is money well spent. Intercultural exchange. Senator Fulbright started that program with the what the proceeds from the armament that he sold that we sold to the European allies after World War II. And the usage of that was peace, not war, and having people come here and our people go there. So tell us, tell us about your fund and, and who can invest and what are the criteria for entry? Uh, so Atla Capital Management runs a fund called the Atla Global Urbanization Listed Fund, which is a long-only global emerging market equity fund. Today, it has 16 positions. Uh, it's been running for just over two years. We've had a good track record to start. and But you know, on a forward basis, it's really the valuations of what's in the portfolio today that makes me constructive about the future. Um, investors are qualified investors in the US. The majority of our small but increasing capital is institutional family offices and to a lesser extent endowment foundation capital as well. What's the minimum? Minimum is uh, $500,000. And maximum? Maximum is, well, the capacity of the fund is $450, $500 million. And that's yeah. a function of the strategy, the underlying liquidity of the universe available. Speaking of capacity, when you make your rounds in the world and uh, and visit places like hotels and five-star hotels in Java, um, do you find people like you um, checking in as well? I mean, do you have much company doing this, uh, the Lord's work of seeking value in faraway places? You know, that trip to Indonesia, no, nobody. Um, last week in Vietnam, there was a conference organized by Vietcap Securities, which is the largest local broker. And so I did meet some of the investors uh, who, you know, also traveled to Vietnam from England or from, you know, here, or from Thailand, from China. That was quite interesting seeing the others who were kind of my peer set. And, and, and I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of difference in, in attitude or in, in how people approach the market among the global EM frontier market investor set. You have a lot of cowboy types that kind of shoot from the hip and don't do a lot of bottom-up work, but feel very comfortable waiting in these areas that few others do. And, um, and, and you know, I, I, I enjoy being around them, but I don't think of myself as one of them. And then there are, you know, others who are quiet and bookish and like to Analyze conflict, individual conflict majors, and, for example. Yeah, conflict majors. None of you know. None of us won popularity contests, which is probably why we're drawn to these areas. So the last decade has been a complete wipeout for a lot of emerging market managers. 
in as much as you put up incredible numbers, a lot of people haven't just because the markets have got down so much. What is sentiment like today and what has it been like, you know, over the course of the last decade of your career? Sentiment is beaten down today and has been beaten down pretty much throughout my entire career in this um, in this area of finance, right? Everybody else has enjoyed a low volatility, you know, nowhere but up to the right on a chart, you know, U.S. return, or positive return. And EM has been through a roller coaster and it's been disheartening for a lot of folks. There's a lot of funds who have, you know, wiped out. I was meeting with a, uh, uh, an equity salesperson at a U.S. bank recently. She covers emerging market funds. And she was saying how analysts on these funds have been losing their job and moving into U.S. managers where they can be paid by funds that can pay them. And so there's this winnowing out of individuals and of firms. You know, few can survive such a long period of kind of of, of tough conditions. But I'm hopeful that a lot of the underlying fundamental conditions mean revert, and eventually, you know, we're at a starting point from this point forward where valuations are compelling, where local currencies are cheap in real terms, where you know, companies have worked through the difficulties of the last decade and are now in a position to compound, you know, underlying corporate earnings. Um, so I, I think on a forward basis, it's quite, I'm, I'm optimistic, even if the sentiment is still beaten down. Why do you stick with it? I'm interested in it. I am, you know, personally interested in it. And I've also cultivated enough experiences over my life that I think I have a bit of an edge in a very narrow, narrow you know, sleeve of markets. I'm, I'm essentially pattern recognizing, you know, something that I've already spent a lot of my life now analyzing. And I think I can, you know, find that pattern. And that edge gives me, you know, an opportunity to keep compounding capital over the next 10, 20, 30 years. What languages do you have? Well, I, in high school, I lived in France, and so I still I speak French, um, and um, I speak Mandarin from the years that I lived there in college and afterwards on the Fulbright. And when I was a college student, I also had studied Arabic, and I had a grant from the National NSEP, National Security Education Program. It's a scholarship created by Senator Boren uh, to have U.S. students learn languages that are important to national security at the time, which was Arabic. And so I studied in Syria um, briefly before it fell apart. Um, but I've forgotten pretty much all of my Arabic. So I'd say I'm passable in French and, and passable in conversational Chinese, but really it's, it's English. Well, we're all lucky that is the world's financial language. So John Haskell, what a fun time I have had in your company. I've watched uh, you, John. I don't mean to sound this guy who... Uh, at JFK, who said, "Welcome home, boy." But I have known I've I've known you since you were this hall, this tall. And uh, congratulations on what you have wrought. And thank you for being with. Yeah, John. So John Haskell was a, a not among his other distinctive agenda or, or resume items was a speaker at a grants event in 2016. That's right. Good uh, talk. Speaking about Latin American opportunities. Yeah. So um, Evan, thank you as always. I'm glad you're glad you're in the office. I hate this uh, working from home stuff during during uh, podcasts. It, it didn't help with sound quality, and it's hard not to trip over people's feet when you can't see who's speaking and when they want to talk. And yeah. Henry, thank you, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. I want to um, to uh, particularly mention um, Martin Lawrenson, 
a listener who uh, has sent in a request for a couple of podcast guests, and I see one I'm going to email right now. So thank you, Martin. Thank you, Jeffrey, for Jeffrey Hill for remarking on the volume and turned it up. Ah, it's loud. Uh, we'll see. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, we will talk soon. And uh, on behalf of Grants, um, thank you. Thank you.